the Book of Romans, laying a solid foundation. The living commentary by Reverend Paul Bucknell, first presented in Benin City, with Spread the Word Ministries. This is the second of three lectures, starting with Romans 3:21, going to the end of chapter eight, discussing both the road and the plan. This is produced by Biblical Foundations for Freedom, www.foundationsforfreedom.net. Releasing God's truth to a new generation. We've been going through uh, the book of Romans, laying a solid foundation. And we discussed so far two parts. The first was, remember, the cross. Do it with me, please. The cross. And the second was the ditch. I want to give a practical application of the ditch before I go on. One of the things I do with my children when we, I have eight children. So sometimes they quarrel with each other. We have to settle it. So how do we do it? Uh, maybe it's two of them, okay? So I'll have the two of them come. And I will ask them, who did something wrong? Now, you know what the temptation is, right? They'll say, he did something wrong. But uh, my question I ask them, I should ask them, is this. If you did anything wrong, raise your hand. Now, they'll want a point. They'll say, well, he started it. But the question I ask them is, raise your hand if you did something wrong. And you know what happens? They always raise their hand. But something's different. When we come to our marriages, what happens? Husband does something wrong. Husband, raise your hand. Did you do something wrong? No, I don't want to raise my hand. Do you see the application of Romans to daily life? If we are not humbled by a truth that I am a sinner, I will not easily confess my sin or humble myself. These truths are elementary. They are the foundation. Without them, we cannot go on. Confession, humility are critical for the minister of God. Someone was telling me on the plane, he was talking about his country, he said, oh, I don't want to be in that country. All the, the politicians, they look good, but once they get elected to the office, they change. They don't care for the people, the things they promised to do. They changed. You know, when we step into an office, the calling of a pastor or evangelist or church planner, we have some authority. But unless, like the Apostle Paul, we die daily, we cannot succeed in being a godly man or minister of Jesus Christ. They come together. Now, before I go on, I just want to pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the word of God. We need you to speak to us. It's so easy to be prideful. So hard to confess that we were rude to our wives. That we didn't really care about them. We want to care about us and our image. Lord, please break us. For it's only when we're broken that the Spirit of God can enter and fully work. And what the world needs is not more of us. It wants Jesus. So Lord, work. 
Speak to us and help us. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, I attempted to go through three sections in the first lecture. I went through two. In this section, we will, I will adjust things and try to go through three. I try. Uh, we'll start with section one where we left off. Chapter 3, verse 21 to 521. Righteousness made. Now, we're going through righteousness revealed, the gospel. That's the R. The O for Romans is righteousness obsolete. It's not there. That's your sin. For part C, what we're describing now is righteousness made. The M, R-O-M of Romans. It's justification. Because after we know that we've been in the ditch, we're looking for the way. We're looking for God. How are you going to save me? We're like the Ethiopian eunuch who says, well, how can I be saved? Can I be baptized? What's to stop me? That's because he had Isaiah chapter 53 opened up. And he heard about the Savior and knew about his sin. So this is the road. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the road. It's a straight way. For man... He'll make a mountain. Oh, you want to be a good religious person? You have to do all these things. But we never can do them. So, in summary, it says, God presents us as righteous before God through faith in Christ. Now, I want you to understand, I did not say God presents us nearly righteous or almost righteous but that God presents us righteous. And there's every bit of difference between false Christianity or religion and true biblical teaching. Because when it says he declares us righteous, he means 100% righteous. And that's why we need to go through the Savior in Jesus Christ. How does God make sinful men and women righteous? This is our question here. Now, the religious man gets its power from man's drive to fill his soul's guilt and emptiness. He uses religion to make excuse for his sin. But he never finds righteousness. Because he's hiding his own sin. And he's excusing himself in the pride of his religion. Some people use Christianity that way. It's a terrible thing. Because if anything, we go through the cross, we go through the ditch to get to Jesus. And in verse 21, verse 22 of chapter 3, he says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Where has it been manifested? even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is where I earlier was talking. It's not through us thinking that we're good enough or trying to be good enough. Because the closer you get to the law, the more you think, yes, i got to work harder. But no one can work hard and get to heaven. Or that's not really the way the Scriptures... Paint it. That's the way we talk. The scripture says no one can completely become righteous 
on his own. We just looked at that in Romans 3, 9 to 20. No one seeks for God. No one understands. No one is righteous. So it's only through Jesus. Now let's think about what this means. There's a lot of jargon here. Jargon means words that normal people don't use. And so when we preach in the gospel, we have to translate these words into regular English or whatever language you're using. Now let's look at 24 to 25. I want to identify a number of these words which are jargon to us, but of pastors, of course, they're normal language. But when we're talking to people in congregation, they don't understand them. So there's a language gap here. And often in that language gap, the Satan is working, covering up the gospel. Now we, as ministers of the gospel, need to break through, understand these concepts, and use regular language to declare them. Now this word righteous is used more than 30 times in the book of Romans. But if we include the way it's hidden away in other words, in other translations, then we will find that it's used more than 50 times. Now I want you to just, first of all, being justified. You got Romans 3.24? Being justified. This word means being declared righteous, if you actually translate it. It doesn't say that. It says being justified. How many have justified in their Bibles? Anyone? Yeah, a lot of people have justified. Not many people use justified in the regular language. Now the Bible's using it. It's a good word, except most people don't understand it. But if you look at the Greek, it's the same word as being declared righteous. They just use this English translation justified to translate it this way. Because it's a legal term. It is a legal term. And if I went to a court and someone accused me of a guilt, being guilty, but the judge, you're declared righteous. Legally, I am declared righteous, free from that guilt. That's what it means. I am declared righteous. Now, we want to go through this section and say, on what basis are we declared righteous? Will God accept that declaration? And we will find yes, because as we go on, God provides salvation. So being justified is the first word we want to look at. Notice, past tense, it's something that's happened. That's because it's a gift. Now, earlier I talked about this important concept. In our lives, salvation is something that God does not owe us. We cannot say, yes, you ought to save me, God. No. You can't say that. We can say what? God, you ought to judge me. Yes, we can say that. Because we're sinners. That's what we ought to get. But as a gift? No, I don't deserve. Do you deserve a gift? You ought to give me a gift. Right, brother? You ought to give me a gift. No, no, I, I can't say that to him. And even worse, we can't say that to God. It's a gift. So every day I think about my salvation. Now I know we've been preaching the gospel. It can get stale. And we can hear it over and over. We can say it over and over. But every day we have to be humble. Thank you for your gift, O Lord. It's grace. There's that word. Grace means unmerited favor. We never deserve it. After we've been pastors for a while, or after you've been Christians for a while, you can move into a, a different mind of thinking. You know you're saved by grace, but you're thinking... 
It's because how you live that God accepts you. Don't move into that. That is false. You know, it's so, I have to catch my own life. Oh, yeah. But when I find that praising God doesn't really mean much to my heart anymore, this is usually the problem right here. I can sing it. But when it doesn't mean anything to me, usually it's because I forget how special His grace is to my life. So I have to come back here, back to remember my sins, back to think, oh Lord, you never should have saved me. But when I think about that, it all becomes sweet again and special. Redemption. Another word we don't often use. The only time I used it when I was little was we used to have these Coke bottles, the Fanta bottles, right? If I bring a, a bottle back, they give me five cents, and the store gives me. Okay, so that's redeeming. So I would bring an empty bottle, give it to them, they would give me five cents. Redeem, exchange. Redeem means buy back. This is what God did through Jesus. He redeemed us. He bought us. Now you say, what do you mean bought? How do you buy? Now notice, he goes on and describes it, which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's done this redemption through Jesus as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now I want to combine these two. Propitiation, another difficult word. It's also used in 1 John 2, 1 to 2. Propitiation means simply a sacrifice where we satisfy God's wrath. We looked at in Romans 1, 18, God's wrath is against us. Uh-oh. How are we going to solve that? Well, we know men offer many sacrifices, but do they really appease God? No. Do they satisfy God? No. Only through Jesus, because he died and took our sins on him. So that's when it talks about in his blood, it means that Jesus actually died for our sins. He became a sacrifice that satisfied God perfectly for those people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now this is the redemption that God paid us back. He redeemed us with his blood. He bought us back from the evil one. We were sold to the evil one. He captured us when he deceived Adam. When Adam obeyed Satan, Adam became the slave to Satan. Slave Satan was his master. He could never get out of that until Jesus became his master. He was redeemed. Jesus bought him back. He satisfied God's wrath with the blood, so no longer did Satan have any claim over our lives. Now, this is so important and so wonderful, isn't it? And this demonstrates, notice the end of verse 25 here, he demonstrates his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Basically, he's saying this. In the old days, they had all the Jews had all these sacrifices. Did this show God's perfect righteousness? No, 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 not at all. Because God never can just overlook sin. No, he cannot overlook sin. God has to judge it. And only when he judges it will you know he's righteous. Now when it comes to our life, did he overlook our sin? No. 
Well, you just said he had to judge our sin. Yes, he did. But he judged us in Jesus. And that's why Jesus had to die. That's one of the questions I often ask people. Do you know why Jesus had to die? So in the forbearance of God, it meant God was patient. He did not carry out judgment right away. He held back. Even with the flood, right? Remember he said, okay, I'll never judge the world the same way. He knew he still had to judge the world. But he wouldn't do it through the flood again. So he passed over sins previously committed, but now, through Jesus, one sacrifice for all time for all believers, perfectly declare us righteous. So when Satan would come by our side and say, look at this sinner, look at this sinner, I say, yeah, I am a sinner. But Jesus took away my sin and he fully bared God's judgment on him for my sake. And I am declared righteous because of Jesus. And my salvation is in Christ alone. And so it is for every believer. It is true for the new believer. That new believer, we have to teach them these truths so they can know and be protected. Otherwise they feel, oh, I'm no good. I sinned. I can't go to church anymore. I'm not good like those people. No, we're pretending we're great, right? But they think they're so terrible and Satan's accusing them. That's because they don't have the truth of God in them. We need to teach them the truth of God. Now, chapter 4 is the illustrations of this truth. It's, it's, a, it's a fun chapter. If you don't like all these details about doctrines and words, chapter 4 is great because it goes into illustrations. I like those more myself. First illustration, Abraham. Abraham, chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. He says, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For it was Abraham who was justified by his works. If it was by his works, he has something to boast about. But we know in Genesis 15, 6, what does it say? He quotes it here in verse 3. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteous. You see, he believed God. Believe and put faith in is the same Hebrew or same Greek word. In English, we have two different words. So we have have faith in and believe. It's the same word being used. They just translate it different. So when it says he believed in God, he put faith in God. It was by faith he was saved, not through our own works. Now he makes this clear distinction because it's only through this means that any person becomes saved. It's not because we know some standard and we live by it. It's because we put our faith in God who will provide a savior. Now, Abraham, David, and the forefathers, they look forward to the Messiah. We look back. But it's the same Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. Christ is Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, we mean Jesus is Messiah. Jesus the Messiah, the promised Savior to come to save people. David, in verse 6 to 8, is the second illustration. Notice David here. Uh, and, and this really helps us remember the former sections. Blessed are, verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Did, did David keep the law? No. You know he didn't. And this is what he's saying. I didn't keep the law. Now here's this great king of Israel. 
but he's testifying all through the Psalms. I am a sinner. But that's what God loved about him so much. He knew how much he sinned so that he knew how much he could trust God to save him. Again, that same theme is coming through. Now, in verse 9 to 12, it talks about the timing of circumcision. But if you look carefully in Genesis 15, happened before that God told Abraham to circumcise him and his sons. So it's not by circumcision or the law that you're saved. No, no. The faith, the promise is to those who have faith. And he goes through this argument even more in Galatians. But we will not at this time. And the last, uh, which is so important, and again, Genesis 15, 5 to 6, he's talking about the promises, the faith given in uh, chapter 4, verse 13 to 25, to the end. He's talking about this. When Abraham believed, what did God do? He made him wonderful promises. And this is what we read in chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through righteousness of faith. You see, the promise was through gain, through believing, not through being. In verse 16, halfway through, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who have the law, but also to those of faith. Verse 17, as it is written, again quoting from the Old Testament, Our Father of many nations have I made you. Now he goes on, verse 18, these are wonderful verses, but uh, I don't have time to discuss them. In hope against hope he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations. And so he believed. Do you see what's happened here? God says, if you believe me, I'm going to give you all this. And Abraham said, I believe you. And then he said, offer up Isaac. Now you know it's through Isaac all these promises to many descendants will be there. But he offered them up in faith. He's in Hebrews 11, right? And it's when this happened, oh, God says, yes! That's what I've been looking for! A man of faith! And I will give you all these things! Forever! And it's in Abraham's seed in Christ. And he said, all those in Christ, I'll grant all these things. And all these promises. And it's, it's here. It's here we see these promises starting to come in. It's here we saw the promises beginning to seize us. And it's here we begin to turn to Romans 5 and say, Oh, what is he doing? Having, verse 1 of chapter 5, having been justified, we have this and this and this and this. I want you to understand the blessings that come through the Spirit of God in our lives. All a part of the restoration that comes through the justification through faith. Once justified, you are sanctified. You are glorified. It all is there. Nothing can take it away from you. Let me just read a few of these verses in chapter 5, verse 1. Verse 2, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. 
I mean, and he just goes, you know, perseverance and character and hope. And, and nothing's going to hold us back, you see. And he goes on and on. Because the promises that were made to Abraham are now ours as he asked his descendants. At the end of chapter 5, verse 12 to 21, he goes on and just goes back to a deeper foundation, a deeper truth, if you would, saying the same thing. 5, verse 12 to 21, he begins to talk about Jesus and Adam. Adam, the man who represented us all, sinned and brought us all into death. One man sinned and all of us fell. He was our head. He was our great dad. Jesus is the second Adam. And when we put our faith in him and let him represent us, he brings us into eternal life. And this is where the gospel comes in. You see, you're not just saved from your sin. You're saved for a relationship with God for eternity. That relationship with God is called life. So different than the separation from God with death. In death, you are operating from your own bodily strength and understanding. You don't have much to offer because you're operating from a life of selfishness. But under the gospel of Jesus Christ, united with God, all of a sudden, he has given you power to live a righteous life. Now, this is so important. This is the faith that we need to live a godly life. This is the faith we need to live a godly spouse and have a great marriage. That God is somehow working in me to carry out a purpose that changes me. He can do something through me that I never could do before. I want you to think, what are those areas that I want him to work more in? Because this is the key. What we do is this. Lord, you know I'm a sinner. But you have called me to be your child. Now, in the name of Jesus, let the Spirit of God mightily work in me, carry out your righteousness through my life. I have a problem with my anger. Lord, I'm looking to you to melt me down, break me, shape me with your truth in such a way that I carry out the life of Christ and no longer live out my anger, but am a gentle man of God. Would your spouse like that? Yeah. <laughs> Would your child like that? Yeah. Would your friend like that? Yeah. Would your congregation like that? Yes. Would God like that? Yes. See, that's the whole point. He's making us righteous. Grace abounded. He summarizes this chapter 5 here. We're going to close this section about the road. Grace abounded all the more. So grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's something he started and something he's never going to stop doing in your life. Amen. It's eternal life. It's a process. Are we made righteous all at once? Let me explain. We are declared righteous all at once. So that's why we can pray in the name of Jesus, not in our own name, in his name. And God accepts us as righteous to live. But when we come to him, we have to realize no, he has, this righteousness is now, it's going to be worked in our life as the truths of the gospel get in us. So we're going to go on now 
And we talked about righteousness revealed, righteousness obsolete, and righteousness made. But we talked about the cross, the ditch, the road. But we want to go on and talk about the plan. And talk about enlarged. Now, in I'm just going to do a little review here. In chapters 1 through 5, and chapters 12 to 16, in one sense, he could go from chapter 5 right into chapter 12. Now, this is very, very important. He could. Because here he just talked about the Gospels, promises, about giving us power. And all, maybe except for a section of 8, which is a little helpful, talking about how the Spirit of God works in our life. He could really just go on to chapter 12, talking about how we need to live out that life. But why does he put 6 to 11 in here? And this is what we want to do for the rest of this lecture, trying to understand this. He's trying to help us see, even though we are justified by faith, we might not be thinking that we need to live out a life of righteousness. Now, this is where Satan comes in. You see, once you're saved, Satan can only do two things. One, he can confuse you about your salvation and make you think that, no, you have to be saved by the law, and so I'll try to be good. He can try to confuse you there. But he really can't do too much harm there. Not if you're reading the scriptures. But he can make you think that, well, I don't have to live righteous. Now this is why he brings in chapter 6 through 11. You see, what's happened? So here we have justification, and, and man often separates it from sanctification. I'll say this, uh, in one of the major errors of what we call evangelical Christianity, Christianity as a whole, one of the major errors right now is we separate justification from sanctification. It is just not done that way. The life that he gives us begins to live itself out. You cannot say, God saved me to get me to heaven. That's wrong. He saved me to make me righteous. He wants to make me to live like Jesus. He wants me to live out that righteousness that he called Adam to live out of good life, righteous life. And that's what he's trying to do in us. That righteous life is not the means by which we gain our righteousness with God. It's the result of what God's done in us through Jesus. And it's such an important, important concept here. And we see that because the early church had this problem. Notice, and as we go on here, Oh, yeah, let me just go back. You know in Romans 1, I think verse uh, 7, it says, We are called as saints. We, God's people. Now, he was, of course, writing to Romans, but we can apply that to our lives as God's people. We are called as saints. That means he sets us apart for him. I want you to get a picture of what God wants to do through your life. Because often, Satan comes around and says, Oh, you're no good. Oh, you've got this sin in your life. Oh, you'll never be that great preacher. You'll never be that great person. And you're always hiding around because every time you try to do something for the Lord, you feel like, whoa, he just hit me hard. Maybe because of some sin. But this is where you need Romans to be your foundation because then you'll come back with the truth of God and say, yes, that's true, I am a sinner. But I believe in Jesus. He is my righteousness. And the Spirit of God is working in my life to live a righteous life. And yes, I might have fell that time, but I'm going forward through Christ. The plan for chapters 6 to 8.
The Lord calls us to live out righteous lives by Christ's power within us. The Lord calls us to live out righteous lives by Christ's power within us. So the question is this. How does God enable man to live righteous lives? Now as we do this, we're going to be a little shaken here when we look at chapter 6, verse 1. Because the first thing we see here is that Paul begins a certain question. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And we're somewhat surprised by this. But I want you to understand that Paul is identifying a pattern here that will be repeated. The pattern goes like this. He asks a question, like he says here, what shall we say then? Then he says, may it never be. Then he says a refutation, in this case, uh, verse 2. How then shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's the refutation. And then an argumentation, which goes on verse 3 and further on. Or do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So that's his argumentation. Now I want you to understand that. If you're going to understand verse, chapter 6 to 8, you and actually even up to chapter 11, this pattern is repeated Chapter 6, verse 1, and you can notice it if you want to underline it. Chapter 6, verse 15, you'll see that, what then, the question, that you'll see that, may it never be. Chapter 7, verse 7, is another section. Chapter 7, verse 13, is another section. So there's four questions he comes up with, and he's going to refute them. He's going to argue them. And he's going to argue them because it's one of the old ways Satan uses to get Christians down. And confuse them about sanctification. Accuse them and saying, making them feel like they don't have to live righteous lives. And I'm sure you've met up with people in your church who believe these things. And that's why he brings them up. Because if sin cannot make you no longer a child of God, the only thing he can do is take away your power of a Christ, Christian life. By thinking, I can't live a righteous life. You see, the power he gives us is to live a righteous life. Now, we talk about power to be able to raise from the dead. and Maybe those are okay, power to heal. But those are all secondary gifts, okay, if you have those gifts. The primary is the righteousness, the privilege to live out a righteous life. That is the primary, primary privilege and heir we have in Christ. To live like Jesus. We also find this pattern in chapter 9, verse 14, 11, verse 1, and 11, 11. So, this whole section is kind of characterized by this kind of pattern. I want you to recognize it. Uh, the difficulty is in explaining it is that you have to get into detail, and I can't, don't have the time to do that. So, I'm introducing the pattern, and I will just briefly introduce four common mistakes we make from chapter 6 and 7 before I go into chapter 8. Okay, first of all, chapter 6, verse 1 to 14. This understanding is like this. I can do whatever I want now. God even brings more grace through my sin. The person argues like this. Well, if God forgives me every time I sin, then more grace comes into my life. So it's okay to sin. Satan has all these sneaky ways to confuse God's people, the sheep. I've heard people say this. Well, I mean, so just keep on sinning. I, I see more of God's grace. Well, if, you say, no, of course no. 
And he, he has his argument. No, you've been baptized into Christ. Now, baptized means that you now have a new owner. You, know, you no longer belong to the world or your flesh. You belong to Christ. And so you need to obey him, not your flesh, which is what they were saying they could do. 15, verse 7, 6. This is an age of grace, is it not? In other words, if God saved me, I'm free to do whatever I want. Now, the modern world loves to hear that. Now, his argument, though, he says, no, of course not. You have a new master. You must obey Christ. Let me just say here, what's the difference between a believer and a non-believer? A non-believer knows he does wrong, but he cannot do right. But a believer is restored back to Adam where he can do right through God's power in him, through the Spirit of God. It does not mean he will perfectly always do righteous lives. It depends on our thinking and our scripture and the foundation we have in us. If I just apply to our marriage, for example, I know I will try to be a good husband, but I might not always be a good husband. My wife needs to prepare herself for the ferocious me, right? <laughs> uh, meanwhile, I have to prepare myself for my wife who might not be perfectly righteous. I, I can't say she ought to be. Well, yes, she ought to be. But maybe she's not at times. So just because we are in this stage of grace, we have the power of God to live righteously. But if we start, we fall to temptation, we will sin. The third argument, chapter 7, verse 7. That's good to hear. Sin isn't my fault. The law is sin. Because when the law comes, then I sin. No, no, he says, no, 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 you can't say that. And I'll quickly go into the last one, which he spends much more time on. Without the law, I would have been okay. It's really God's fault. He shouldn't have given us the law. Well, these are people who are very familiar with the Old Testament, and they're thinking about the law. And every time they think about the law... It says, you shouldn't lie, but then I lie. You shouldn't steal, but then I'm tempted to steal. No, no, it's not the law doing that. The law just is helping you be aware how you are doing it. And this is the plan. So there's four misunderstandings in chapters 6 to 7. I didn't really want to spend more time in here because each one really deserved its full hour in discussion. But there is more in the book, and you can read that. I do want to spend a little more time in Romans 8 because this is so important. Now, Romans 8, it's possible that it goes on and it's Paul's argument continuing from chapter 7, verse 13 to 25. This is possible because you'll see here he's wrestling here with the flesh and the spirit. He's talking about the flesh just like he was at the end of chapter 7. So it might be a, a continuation on the argumentation. Or it might be he's gone on and he's just affirming the blessings that he talked about in Romans chapter 5 and 4. The blessings of being in the second Adam in Christ. Or dwelling in Abraham and being his child and having those blessings. Notice in 8 9, he says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You're not in the flesh. In other words, when you became a Christian, that flesh, that old selfish you, is no longer in control. 
Oh, this is so wonderful. Make sure that your believers in your church know this. Is it still hanging around? Yes. Can I still obey it? Yes. But it's no longer my master. Now, if there's some ferocious giant here, and he's mean, he has a big club, and he's saying, you bow on your knees to me. I might, out of fear, or I say, okay, I'll, I'll just bow on my knees. Giant is master. What he commanded, I obey. Now, sin will do that with temptation. This lust there. Oh, so strong. You know, think about that woman that way. Wow. You know, I feel like I have to do it. Okay, that's just like that monster. He's trying to make you think you have to. He wants you to bow down to that old self. Sometimes it uses fear. Sometimes it uses attraction. Promise of pleasure. Pride. I'm better than. You don't have to. This is a liberating thing. And, and once you know that you are not in the flesh, what he means is, of course, you still have a physical body, but you don't have to obey those old self. Anytime, you know, we face these daily. And it has to do with how we think about this foundation, the truth here, that has to do with our life. But in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are not in the flesh. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You see, so here he's making a very clear declaration. Believers all have the Spirit of Christ. And it's through the Spirit of Christ you will live a righteous life. This is what we need. To know more of the power of God in our life so we can live a good life. Can one become more righteous than he is now? Okay, there's two ways you need to perceive this. Understand it. One is before God, you're declared righteous in Christ. Okay? That can never get 101%. 100% fully satisfies. There's a propitiation. Clearly wonderful in Christ's name. So when we come in prayer, he's looking to us as righteous people. Like Adam before he sinned. And, and that's wonderful. But if we talk practically, yes, we are growing in righteousness. Where once, I mean, I could name so many sins in my life. I, I used to lie. You know, lie, 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 yeah. And, and God confronted me. No lying. And then later on in my life, I, I thought I was doing good in that. And then he pointed out another area. You know, you're not, you're exaggerating things here. You're lying. Oh, Exaggerations a lot. Oh. Okay, so I have to humble myself and I become more righteous. So each time I get closer to God, He be exposes more of my sin. And I get closer. But He'll it, He'll reveal more aspects of lust, more aspects of pride, more aspects of lying, of stealing, and all those things will be more revealed to me. And so as they're revealed, I grow more righteous, more like Christ. I just want to go on to uh, Romans 18 to 39 here, the problem of suffering. It, it, it's a problem uh, that is so strong. I mean, 
many of us have read reports in Kenya, for example, uh, last year. Uh, we reports uh, in India. Uh, I, I've just was been there the last couple of years, and they're, they're, they take a whole tribe of Christians. Uh, not a tribe, but a whole state of Christians, and they allowed a, a certain political party come in, and religious party, and the Hindu party, and just come in, and they burn down all the churches, burn down the Christian businesses, and kick them out of their homes. And they can't go back home. So even to today, thousands and thousands are in refugee camps. Okay. Now this is in a supposedly democratic country, right? Uh, but it can happen anywhere. But a question in our mind is, all right, if God brought these promises into our lives, and we're His, and we have the Spirit of God, notice what happens in chapter 18, verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 18. Actually, he introduces the topic in verse 17. He says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we might be glorified with him. Now hold on. Now realize here, the sufferings, he introduces the topic. How can we understand how does suffering fit into the Christian life? Notice in verse 18, For I consider, for I consider the sufferings of this world to be part of my own experience. Now, in verse 18 to 25, he explains how they work together. In verse 26 to 30, he explains the full involvement of how the Spirit of God is really working in our life. And even though I might go quick here, but I, I, I certainly assure you, if you read through these verses, you'll be wonderfully uh, touched. For the Spirit of God, verse 26, the, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When I talk about personal, I mean personal. The Lord God knows what's happening in your life, even when it's suffering, even when your health is down, even when you're being persecuted unjustly, He's there. And the God is working personally, powerfully. It's all prepared. It's all purposeful. And, and in fact, in 29 to 30, He talks about a whole process of being foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. You see that? In other words, he has your whole life mapped out before you were born. He foreknew you. You are so special. You over there. Yeah, you. Smile. Because before you were made, I was going to save you. And this is where we see God's love and compassion come in. Not because he had to, because he chose to. Now when you guys go look for a wife, what kind of wife do you look for? The best. The best one. And they are the best to you. Yes. And when God goes out, He looks for the best. No. He looks for the worst. He looks for the dead. He looks for the sinner. But He knows what He can make us in Christ. Yes. And this is what He's doing. This is why making us righteous is so important. And nothing is going to stop that process from foreknowing, predestining, for calling us in time, from justifying, and that's what we're talking about more in this whole book of Romans, and the glorifying. One day he's going to give us a new body, a new heavens, a new earth, 
And it, it's just so wonderful. You see, suffering, yes, we might have. Christ went through suffering, and we might share that with him. But we know from verse 31 to 39, he is absolutely, eternally committed to us, no matter what we go through. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And if I close this section, let me close it with just reading some of these last verses, verse 37 to 39. But in all, in these, all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A wonderful thanks to God. And it's all that more wonderful when we realize he didn't have to do that. All he had to do was judge us, and he would prove himself righteous. But God's showing more than judgment. We're going to see that in Romans 9 in the next section. But we're going to pause here. Let's close in a word of prayer. Mighty God, we thank you for your love. Your eternal love for us. You want your love and your truth to go out to the streets, Lord. You want to save the lost. You want to bring more into your kingdom. Oh, Lord, open our hearts up to your love. That we will always always be touched through your love even when we go through difficult times of suffering and even persecution in Christ we pray Amen This concludes the second of three parts and overview of Romans Romans 3.21 to the end of chapter 8 The Road and the Plan by Paul Bucknell presented by Biblical Foundations for Freedom www.foundationsforfreedom.net releasing God's truth to a new generation